Please turn back to page 1233 to check me out as I turn to this great passage in Revelation. An opening question. Have you ever seen a voice? That's a nice question. Have you ever seen a voice? Well, it says here in verse 12, I turn round to see the voice. In one of the churches I was in, I worshipped in, we had a, a lady with a very penetrating uh, voice. I'm afraid she was known mostly, uh, lovingly, as The Voice. That was the name. And every now and again, the question would be, have you seen The Voice? But since those days, I've never seen a voice. But here John did. And I find it very intriguing. What was the voice he saw? Well, way back in verse 10, he heard a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, I've no doubt he knew the voice. It was the voice he'd shared with for three years. It was a voice he'd heard often. He couldn't doubt it, but uh, he wasn't here. After all, John was on a little island four by eight miles across, an island called Patmos, 50 miles away from his beloved Ephesus and the churches. He knew, and was it a trick of his imagination, that Jesus was there? The voice was familiar, yet it was different. It was like a trumpet uh, and, well, uh, Jesus wasn't quite like that when he knew him. And I'm intrigued as I think that John was remembering these words. Do you remember that you're studying these verses at the beginning of John, uh, at the beginning of Revelation? It's the Revelation. Please don't fall into the mistake of calling this book Revelations. It's in the singular. It's the Revelation. It's the unveiling. And it's the unveiling of Jesus, says verse 1 of chapter 1. And he's told to write all about it in verse 19, what he's seen. And please note that what he's seen is already there. It's not just the, the future. You'll never understand Revelation. you think it's just a kind of old Moore's almanac of the future. It's actually about the present and the future. It's true now. And John, who writes these words as he remembers this great day on the island of Patmos, in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day was the one who wrote the Gospel. And in the Gospel, he tells a story of somebody else who uh, saw a voice. In the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, there's the remarkable thing that happened on the first day, on the Lord's Day, the very first, in a sense, Lord's Day, Easter Day, and Mary Magdalene, the first person to see Jesus. Extraordinary story. She saw him and thought he was a gardener and carried on a conversation with Jesus as if he were a gardener. And suddenly it all changed. He simply said, Mary. And she said, Master. I find it most intriguing. She didn't recognize him when she saw him, but she recognized him when she heard him. And I'm eternally grateful that the truth about Jesus is the word. Isn't it part of the mercy of God? I think that's the mercy of God that he chose to send Jesus into the world when there weren't digital cameras at every corner taking a photograph of everything. You can't sit down for a meal these days without somebody pushing a digital camera in your face and taking a picture of you. I'm so glad that he came in a day when it's his words we know. I don't know what Jesus looked like. If I met him tonight, I wouldn't recognize him. Well, I think I would very quickly because very soon something special will be there. Was he tall? Was he, was he small? Was he thin? Was he fat? We don't know. And it doesn't matter. But we know what he said. 
And so at this moment there on the island of Patmos, he saw a voice. It's a special evening for Mike and it's a special day. He must have worn out, but I'm sure he's enjoyed it. He'll never sleep tonight. These are exciting days. But uh, it's been a special day for him and our minister support team. But it's for all of us. And we all are, as it were, in two worlds. John was on an island called Patmos, says verse 9, a penal settlement, a place you went to because you were in trouble with the authorities, and he was there. Nothing made any difference. He wasn't taken away. In the spirit on the Lord's day, he was still there on the island called Patmos. And yet he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And all of us will be in situations which sometimes are challenging. It'll not always be like today for Mike. There'll be moments of disappointment, moments of just sheer ordinariness. And for all of us, wherever we are and whatever we do as witness, we're on our island. That's where we are meant to be. Uh, this is a little series called The Pressure of Christ and The Pressure Cooker. And we are often in worlds of test- days of testing. More of that as we go through. Now, here's the question. When he actually turned and saw the voice, what did he see, first of all? When I was a lad at Sunday school, every time they asked you a question, the answer was Jesus. It was very embarrassing. You wouldn't even bother raising your hand because you knew it was always Jesus. That was always the answer to the question. And you didn't want to... Well, just too simple, Jesus. And if I said, what did he see first? Jesus? No. I saw seven golden lampstands. The first thing John saw was not Jesus, he saw the church. The seven churches mentioned in verse 11, all those seven churches, they were churches in the area around Ephesus, churches he'd known and loved. Oh please, if you get a commentary on Revelation that suggests all of church history is here and we go through the Ephesus age and the Smyrna age and the Pergamum age, throw it away, it's nonsense. It's nothing like that. If that had been true, do you know what the Reformation time was. The Reformation time was the Sardis age. And the Sardis was a church which was thought to be alive, but was dead. Friends, if the age of the Reformation was dead, may I say it reverently, God help us today, if that was a dead age. So don't believe a word of it. They were churches he knew and loved, and they were the seven golden lampstands. And there's nothing dishonouring to Jesus to say that John was thinking primarily about the church. And suddenly came the voice. And the voice was the voice of Jesus who was walking there in verse 13 among the lampstands. My talk tonight is quite simple. I don't want to talk about the context of this revelation, this unveiling. What was the context? And then what was the content? What he saw what he heard. And I hope in some ways it may send Mike out with renewed vigour to serve the Lord, ministry support team as they go around. Uh, I need reinvigorated as I go around my own little ministry support team up and down the country. But all of us, all of us, in our witness here and elsewhere. Three simple things about the context. The place, this is verses 9 to 11. The place was, yes, Patmos, that little place four by eight miles across, penal settlement, And he was there because he'd been true to Jesus. There are many Christians today who are suffering for the sake of Christ. And if legislation is going through these days in our land, there will be plenty of people in this country who will suffer if they stand true to the word of God. Please note it. I've been warning you for years and it's coming like a flood. 
and we like to think it's not going to happen. And when the sexual orientation bill was going through, that's just a reminder of what is going to happen. And there'll be Christians who, because they make the stand on the word of God, will lose their livelihood and their money, and there'll be church halls that will not be able anymore to hire themselves out to anybody because they dare not, not hire them out to a, a same-sex couple getting married and wanted a reception. These are, this is the reality of the world in which we live. And uh, it's going to be a pressure cooker for many. So John is speaking not to people whose life is easy and comfortable, who want to turn their back on the problems of life and just put your head in the sand. He doesn't have anything to say to you. But if you are prepared to live in the real world, live in your Patmos, then there's a word for you and for me. That was the place he was. And if you notice, in that place, who is he? I, John, your brother and companion. I do love that. He was the leader. He was an apostle. He was, if you like, their bishop, but he was just their brother and companion. His heart was with them, though he was exiled. And the cause? Why was he there? He was <clears throat> there for the suffering, kingdom, patient, endurance, verse 9, because of the word of God and the testimony to Jesus. That's why he was there. He wasn't going on a cook's tour. You may have a little tour and see Patmos and see what it's like and you'll take pictures and think, there you are. He didn't want to be there. He was exiled. He was in prison, but he was there for those three causes. Will you please note, suffering, kingdom, patient endurance, linked together. The kingdom's in the middle. And the kingdom will often involve suffering and patient endurance. You see... There was a time, do you remember that, don't things change? Do you remember the chorus, majesty, worship is majesty? It used to be a kind of, we sang it so often, that of a moratorium and not singing majesty. Well, it was a great song, and it talks about kingdom authority. Now, I know that when it was first written, it, it was, there was no comma between kingdom and authority. You were supposed to sing kingdom authority. And those of us who know our theology better, we sang a comma. Have you tried singing a comma? It's rather nice singing a comma. Kingdom, pause, authority. Because kingdom authority was a kind of great phrase, you see. Everything was going to happen. The world was going to be swept before the church triumphantly. Well, it didn't happen. No, the kingdom of which this verse speaks is a kingdom that involves suffering, patient endurance. That's the cause. When you get to chapter 6 of the book of the Revelation, it talks about those who were, who'd been martyred because of the testimony to God the, and the word of God and their testimony to Jesus. The place, the cause, the day. It was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, some of you may know that the only job I've taken on since I retired is I am president of the Lord's Day Observance Society. It's purely a name on a piece of paper. I don't know who worked for it, and I certainly don't get paid for it, but I am, and I'm happy to be president, because I believe we are dishonouring the Lord's Day. And many of the things we do, I've just had a little book published under the title, under the Day One imprint. Day One's the name, because it is the Day One. It's the first day, the first day of the week, and I, I want to battle for the importance of Sunday. I trust you're here today because you want to worship God, and there's nothing better to do. And I do wish you could say to our non-Christian friends, we don't go to church because we can't think of anything better to do. We go to church because it's a joyful and wonderful experience. Well, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. 
But it meant more to John than just turning up at church on Sunday. There was a thing called the Emperor's Day. And excuse me, the Emperor's Day was when you all had to bow the knee before Caesar and offer your allegiance to Caesar. And if you did, if you could compromise your position, just bow the knee to Caesar as Lord, all is well. John wouldn't. He couldn't. Rather like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego centuries before in Babylon, he refused to compromise. And since he wouldn't call Caesar Lord, he was in prison, in exile. But it was the Lord's day. Ultimately, the emperor doesn't have the last word. The Lord does. And isn't it lovely? It's on that day that he heard the voice and saw the voice and the voice was like a trumpet. If you follow the trumpets in the book of the Revelation, you'll find they keep on coming. And uh, we're not doing the whole Revelation, but it keeps coming. But it also comes in the Bible at very special occasions. In the Old Testament, on the great feast days, they sounded the trumpet. And there will come a day when the trumpet shall sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. When our Lord returns on that day, whenever it may be, it will be with a trumpet call. And in a very real sense, Jesus is announcing his victory to John when everything seemed to be going wrong. Mike's ministry will be a a lot of time to people where at the moment things all seem to be going wrong. Not the way we would choose. And we pray that he'll have the grace and wisdom and sensitivity to point them to the one who is victor, as we'll see in a minute, who's got the keys of death and Hades. But we want to be proclaiming now that the Jesus we worship is the one who is victorious and therefore we dare to believe that he will have the last word. And so please pray for your friends in Iraq, Christians who are suffering terribly for their faith today. Many Christians in many parts of the world who desperately need our prayers, the least we can do is to be sure that we are not ashamed of our Jesus. Not only in church on this Lord's Day, but wherever we are in our island Patmos. The context. Just a word or two about the content of the revelation. What did he see and what did he hear? Well, what he saw in verses 12 to 16 is intriguing, isn't it? As I said, he, he saw, first of all, the church. Now, don't miss this, please. You mustn't miss this. When he saw the church, the seven golden lampstands, it was not the seven-branched lampstand of the Old Testament. Now, you see, in the Old Testament, there it's Exodus 25, it comes again in Zechariah, you get this picture, and some of you have had your seven-branched candlesticks for Christmas. That's fine. But you see, it's not that. They are seven separate golden lampstands. You see, in the Old Testament, they were all united in the nation of Israel. But the church of Jesus Christ is not united in any nation, not in any denomination, but is only made one by the fact that Jesus walks amongst them. You won't find denomination in Scripture. A friend, when I was at Oak Hill Theological College where Paul went and my son went and all the best people went to, when I was training at Oak Hill Theological College, uh, we had a great man called Alan Stibbs who taught us about the church. And he wrote a famous book. 
in those days, you didn't worry about titles, snappy titles. That's a modern craze. This book was called The Church, Universal and Local. You can imagine how exciting that seemed to most people. <laughs> the Church, Universal and Local. But it's a superb book. Find it in a bookstore, buy it, whatever it costs. And it's a simple reminder that in the Bible there's only two churches. The whole world church and the local church. Oh, you have denominations for ease and help and all that. That's understandable. But the actual church, the word in the scriptures, means either the whole world or the local church. And we're united not in bishops or whatever. And I find that one bishop in the House of Lords voted for this measure, voted against what we're trying to do. It's appalling to me uh, that a bishop can actually vote for sexual orientation I just measure a regulation measure. If you follow it through, you should be appalled that any bishop would vote that way. If I were in that diocese, I would have no allegiance to him whatsoever. So we know we're not united in a bishop. We're united in Christ. He walks amongst the seven golden lampstands and it's Jesus who unites us. Please, that's not church politics. That's absolute essential Christology. The church is the people of Christ. Where Christ is, there is the church. And wherever he is, we belong to the same people. And do you see how he walks amongst them? Just look at the picture. Now, I'm a, not a visual man. I'm a word man. And if you were to ask me to sort of try to draw a picture, I'm not very good. Some of you know I was at school. My, my, my school days were marked by complete illiteracy when it comes to art. I remember finding the, an old uh, report from school and I'd done quite well in most subjects and got down to art and art said, position in class, 30. Number in class, 31. Ah. <laughs> I remember one lab was away all term, that term, that was one, so that I was bottom. And the comment of the art teacher was, only wasn't that kind? Bottom, only fair. No, I, I really, I, I art, I can't visualise, it's too much for me. But I do read the words of verses 13, 14, 15, 16. I get the message to you. He's like a son of man. He's like the one he knew, but he's different. He's like the book of Daniel. We read Daniel 7, read last week and this week, so it must be right. That remarkable passage in Daniel where the Son of Man comes in glory. Do you know when Jesus quoted Daniel chapter 7? On trial for his life. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I am, says Jesus, using the divine title. Never minimize who he claimed to be. I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming in the power with great glory in the clouds of heaven. He quoted Daniel 7 of himself. And now? Well, that's the picture. I don't think you need to make every detail of theological significance, but you get the message, don't you? Purity, dazzling purity, not surprising, John in verse 17 fell at his feet as though dead. Please don't make Jesus just a good mate. He's a saviour of the world. And if I'm to meet him, I'd want to bow at his feet. I understand why John did it. But do you notice there's one lovely, a lovely contrast in verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, 
And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Don't you see the significance? It was out of the mouth came the sword. You don't normally have a sword in your mouth. Not a good way to use a sword. But it's a reminder to us that it's the Word of God that actually cuts both ways. It's a two-edged sword. And when I come to the Word of God, it kills and it brings to life. It slays and it brings resurrection. But in his hand, he held seven stars. Right hand. Sorry, left-handed people, there's nothing wrong with being left-handed. And England can do with a, a very good left... Oh, we've got a good left-arm ball now, but a left-hand batsman of, of quality will be, will be helpful. But, so if you're left-handed, it's all right. But it's in, the Bible sees the right hand as a place of strength. Jesus at the right hand of God. And in his right hand, seven stars. Who are the seven stars? Well, uh, it tells you in verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. I hate to tell you this, but Paul is an angel. Did you know that? Paul there is an angel. Yes, he's a messenger. He looks after the church. He's, he's a star and he's an angel. I bet he doesn't always live like an angel, but he is one. Uh, and it's a reminder to us that those of us who are called into leadership, Mike, as he goes to St. Luke's, all of us who have any leadership are in the hands of the risen Jesus. It's a lovely picture. None shall ever pluck you out of my hand. And the hope for the church is with all its imperfections. He walks in the midst. He is full of power, but full of grace and love. What he saw, finally in verses 17 to 20, what he heard. Understandably, John fell at his feet as though dead. And then Jesus put his right hand and said, here's what he said. Uh, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. Every Christian worthy of his or her salt ought to be frightened at the responsibility we have. If you can take it lightly being a Christian in this world in which we live and the challenge students having to face challenge about daring to call themselves Christian unions and evangelicals in the world of today, ordinary Christians daring to stand up, it's frightening. Life would be a lot easier if it could back out. So I need to be reminded, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And we've got to the title of my sermon at last. The key to life. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Oh, please don't take those words lightly. If we needed a new key in our house because we'd lost a key, I could go down and get a, a key cut. No, I must be honest. Margaret would, would go down and get a key. <laughs> same, same truth. It would get there eventually. Uh, but you see, what did Jesus do? Did he go down and get a key cut? Oh no, he got the keys of death and Hades because he wrestled with Satan. He went right to the death for us. He went into death and into Hades. He went to hell for me. And so he came out with a key. Interesting, isn't it? In Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said in Matthew 16 to Peter, You are Peter. On this rock I'll build my church. And I give you the keys of the kingdom. No, not because he happened to be Bishop of Rome, whether he were or not, he's neither here nor there. But because he'd made his witness. He testified to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And it was a saying to Peter that the church now holds in its hand the keys. What a tremendous responsibility. Oh yes, we'll pray for Mike. He goes to people who are facing the reality of death. And he believes there's a key. He that Jesus has, he stormed death and Hades. I love that picture in the Bible where it says, the gates of hell, says Jesus to Peter, will not prevail against the church. When I was a young lad and we sang more militant hymns, we sing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. We don't sing them much these days. I used to enjoy those militant hymns. Anyway, we used to sing it. And it talked about gates of hell shall never against that church prevail. And I said, joy sing it. And I suddenly thought what it said. Gates of hell will never against that church prevail. My thought was hell was attacking us, but we're holding on. We're not losing. But no, no, no. It's we who are doing the attacking. It's the gates of hell that will not prevail. I looked around that congregation and thought, I can't imagine Satan's all that worried about us lot. But anyway, that's what we're singing. Gates of hell shall never. And thank God, because what he did and stormed death and Hades, we are on the side of victory. Death has been defeated. Hell has had notice served upon it. And you and I may enter in it talks about opening the kingdom of heaven to all believers. And whatever the gospel is taken out, the key is unlocks the door. I noticed the last time I preached from this passage in this pulpit was Pentecost Sunday, 1997. I keep my records carefully. Pentecost Sunday, 1997. My last time as vicar here, my last Pentecost Sunday as the vicar of this parish. And what a good passage for Pentecost Sunday. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And what does the Spirit want to do more than anything? He wants to point to the risen Jesus. And the mark of the Spirit at work is that Jesus is being glorified. That's what it's about. And I look at my records and more than once I preached on that passage on Easter Sunday. It's actually part of the Anglican lectionary on Easter Sunday. We didn't often meet the lectionary here at Fulwood. We don't normally have much to do with lectionaries, but we normally met up on Easter Day, and part of the lectionary was Revelation 1. What a great day for Easter, the risen Jesus. Now, isn't it interesting? As I finish my thoughts to you tonight, it's just after Christmas. We're just starting a new year. It fits there, too, that the baby Jesus, whom thousands of people worshipped just a fortnight ago, grew up, went to the cross, and open the kingdom of heaven to all believers. It's my prayer that not just for Mike and his new work, not just for the ministry support team and their faithful ministry, but for all of us, this will be a day of recommissioning by the risen Lord Jesus. Seen a voice? What a great voice that is and that was. I still will be on Patmos he won't necessarily take me out of my challenging situation, but he give me strength to in it and through it into victory. Let's pray.